Heavenly Father, we're grateful once again for this day and this season of the year where we can remind ourselves that we have a great rescuer and what it means to be part of your people. We pray that as this message is brought forward today that you would spur our hearts on, that you would think our thoughts, that my words would be yours, and you would bend our wills to yours and set each and every one of our hearts on fire with love for you. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Please be seated. One of the great benefits of growing up outside of Washington, D.C. is there was so much, and to this day, there's so many free things you can do that are of excellent quality. Among those things is every year around the 4th of July is the Smithsonian Institution puts on the Festival of American Folk Life. Every year they invite a different state to come and display their culture because every state has a different culture. Yeah. They invite another nation to come. So you learn about other nations, you learn about different states and all the different foods. It's a glorious time. I don't care if it's 99 degrees with 99% humidity. It was fun, and we had a great time doing it. My favorite was Oklahoma. I'm eight years old, and on the National Mall, they set up a rodeo. I, I'm, I'm not kidding you. A legitimate, professional rodeo with, from the rodeo circuit. And I, I'm, I, I'm just drinking this in as a little kid. I've never seen a rodeo. I've seen it on TV. But the guy climbs onto the saddle bronc, leans over, gives the nod. I'm sitting right next to him, you know? And that horse just takes off, and I'm, I'm just, I'm in, baby. This is heaven. My dad bought me some, some slushies and everything. I stayed there for hours. I just loved it. The women, and their, they, they did the, the racing, the barrel racing, you know? I'm just thinking, I'm going to marry a woman like that. <laughs> just, just amazing. You ever see they don't bounce? They ride, man. It was uh, just phenomenal. And then some crazy dude with sandals, a robe, hippie hair, walking on the, because it's Washington, all right? These things do happen there with a big sign, the end is near. The end is near. And I turn to my dad, and I go, what's he talking about? He goes, oh, it's a fruit cup. Don't listen to him. He doesn't know what he's doing. Well, verse 7, Peter, the end of all things is at hand. What does that mean? Now, I'm not saying the guy with the sign was, was normal. He seemed a little off kilter to my eight-year-old mind. Um, but maybe he was on to something. <laughs> you know, we think of crazy people giving messages like that. The world says if you live as if the end of the world is near, you're crazy. But what this text is saying, if you don't live as if the end of, is near, you're crazy. How can this be? Therefore. We're going to focus on what's before the therefore so that we know what's coming afterward matters. 
what it's really saying is, and what Peter is saying, if there really is a God, if there's really moral absolutes, if it's really true, therefore there'll be a reckoning. And if to live as if there's not a reckoning, you're crazy. You see, it's one thing to embezzle money from your business. It's another thing to embezzle money the day before the accountant arrives. If you don't live as if the end is near, you're out of touch, Peter says. C.S. Lewis says, if truth is objective, if we live in a world that we did not create and cannot change merely by thinking, if the world is not really a dream of your own, then the most destructive belief we could possibly believe would be the denial of this primary fact. In other words, if there are, if there are moral absolutes and we don't care to discover them, it would be like closing your eyes while you're driving. You know, and by the way, I know people, when we, we hear these things, the end is at, of all things is at hand. You know, people go, well, that's just kind of primitive thinking, you know, really. A good question you can ask, well, do you believe anything Jesus says makes sense? Let's say they do believe some of the stuff Jesus makes sense. Well, 20% of what he did talk about was his second coming. See, if Jesus is a lunatic, don't worry about it. But if he's the prophet, priest, and king that he claims to be, how can you pick and choose what you, how you live your life? Plenty of people do pick and choose. But let me tell you, whenever anybody says, oh, I, I love Jesus, he's great, he's, he's super, I love many of his teachings, but I just can't buy his teaching on sexual ethics, the end times, judgment, what have you. I, you know, I just can't believe this. You know, people had lots of delusions back in the first century. Don't like Paul very much either. You know the problem with that, right? Look at your assumptions. The assumption when a person says some of what the Bible teaches is timeless, but others are not, you're assuming your time and the values of time are not time-bound. When we think we can take the Bible and determine what is timeless and what is erroneous, we're assuming the thought of our age by which we are doing is picking and choosing is correct and timeless. What you really mean is there's those parts that you agree with and you can't take others. You can't do that because either God has spoken in his word or he hasn't. But if he has spoken, you can't pick and choose based on our time period because our time will eventually look as silly as well as all the other times. G.K. Chesterton said, it's the one thing that's hardest to remember about our time is that it's a time. All that is not eternally is eternally out of date. And when Jesus says, I'm coming back, if anything Jesus says is true, that must be true as well. So you'd be foolish to live as if he wasn't coming back to audit the books. He's the great accountant as well as the great Lord. Now, if this is true, you see it says, you understand the end is near. Therefore, how shall we live? 
We're walking through the letter of Peter over the next few weeks. We're going to wrap it up. We've been learning all year what it means to be a disciple then and now. Last week we learned, therefore, because Christ has done all this for us, don't be surprised when we face persecution, when we face marginalization. Don't be surprised when things happen to us. We didn't do anything wrong. So therefore, Peter turns to how we shall live, how we react, even when people don't treat us right. And so it's important to remember he's coming back. I remember a story. Uh, one time before cell phones, I had my kids in the back of, my, of the car, and Kim was in a store, you know. Mom will be back in 10 minutes, right? You know, and my kids, it's a beautiful day. My boys, if you remember my boys, they can't keep their hands off each other. They're hitting each other. Stop it, guys. Let's go out, Dad. Sorry, Dad. There's, there's, look at that park over there. Let's just go. We can go over there. I'm saying, no, Mom's coming back in just in 10 minutes. 10 minutes goes by. See, we could have gone to the park. I said, uh, Mom's going to be here anytime. See, it's important that we remember this is exactly what it's like, you know? It's important that we recognize more and more that he's coming. My kids weren't wrong by saying, uh, Jesus, you know, mom's coming back. I wasn't wrong by saying, mom's coming back. And that's what it's like. Let's keep a clear head. And make sure we recognize he's coming back. So what does it mean for us? It means four things that we're going to have to embrace. Number one, be sober-minded. Two, earnestly love one another. Three, show hospitality to one another. And four, serve one another. Because when Peter said the end is near, he was right. When I say to you the end is near... I'm right, too. We must live as if he could come back any time. We're in a perpetual advent, even though it's Lent. Therefore, number one, let us be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Verse 7. Isn't that ironic? To be sober-minded means to be sane. Mark 5, Mark 5 Luke 8, talk about the demoniac. You guys remember that story. The guy was demented, lived all day in the tombs, was crazy, slobbered all over himself. Jesus' power came upon him and healed him. And the text said he became clear-minded. It's the same Greek word. He was sane. Another way to put it is the fog was lifted. He became in touch with reality. To be sober-minded is to be sane, is to live realistically and to be in touch with reality. When we expect Jesus to be returning, we're in touch with reality. To be crazy is to be driving with your eyes closed. Can you see how utterly opposed the spirit of Christ, the spirit of the Bible, is with the spirit of the world? They couldn't be more opposite to one another. And to put Peter's sentiment as clearly as possible, be clear-headed. 
don't live like those in the world who are constantly looking for an escape. Those who just always live for the weekend, always live for the next vacation, always live for the evening when they can turn off their minds. What they're desiring is an escape from reality. Yet for the working Christian, there's nothing further from the truth. We live here and now. We're to be different. We're to be clear-thinking men and women. We're to have our mental faculties with us all the times. And notice what Peter says. He adds on, verse 7, for the sake of your prayers. Our clear-headedness is for the sake of prayer. Well, that's convicting. And let me put it this way. The mark of a Christian at the end of the age is a person who's on his or her knees in prayer. Could it be that the strength of our prayer life is an indication of the progress that we've been making in self-control and single-mindedness, clear-mindedness, sober-mindedness? If so, then many of us might need to get busy before we're asked to meet and speak with Jesus face-to-face. We're a people who watch and pray. Jesus used that language in the garden. He said, the time is at hand. It's no accident that Peter uses this language in talking about what it means to be a Christian in his day and ours. The time is evil, the devil is active, and our minds must get ready for the onslaught of the last days, which we're in. Number one, be sober-minded. Number two, earnestly love one another. Peter, verse 8, moves on. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So first, our love should be sincere, genuine, real. That's what earnest means. Secondly, we're to love one another. It's relational. Peter's been driving this throughout the letter. The point of the words one another appear also again in verse 10. What Peter wants in these last days is a one another kind of life for the people of God. In fact, when you consider these writing to these hosts of churches across what we call today Turkey, it appears that Peter wants this truth to permeate the geography. And you can't love someone you don't know. That's why we push and we encourage getting a little church group, get to know one another, hang out, have coffee, talk with one another. Churches are called upon to love one another. Isn't it better to live life together than in isolation? It's the mark of a mature end times and becomes especially applicable to our lives. Here at Christ Church, may all our little churches feel as if we are one in this because you're together with people you, you, you may, may have nothing in common with, but you believe this together. And we do life together. And we learn that even love covers a multitude of sins because <laughs> there's no perfect people here. After all, the blood of Christ alone is what covers sins. Love takes the oxygen out of sin the way a blanket chokes the air from a person caught on fire. Suddenly, as long as the oxygen is present, the forest fire rage. But if we could take the air away, the blaze settles down. 
and a great tract of land could be saved. May we love in this way. One another is an aspect of our lives together. We keep short accounts because these days demand a sincere love. So we're self-controlled and sober-minded. Two, we earnestly love one another. Three, we're hospitable. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. You hear that? Without grumbling. Show hospitality. Perhaps you're aware of the strategic importance of, of this for those who were traveling in the first century. There were no Hampton Inns, Holiday Inns, Courtyards by Marriott. So there were, a traveler would head into the town center in the hope that someone would invite them into their home. I was taught this great lesson as a young minister uh, when I went to the Simeon Trust Workshop in Wheaton, Illinois. I had no money. <laughs> Carl Neely, uh, the guy I worked for at Trinity Beaver, he, he, out of his discretionary fund, he would pay my gas and he would pay for my registration fee, but I had to figure out money for my food and I had to figure out money for my hotel, which we couldn't afford. Well, College Church Wheaton people put me up. For about four or five years, I stayed with various families of College Church as the Anglican guy, you know? You know, because no other Anglicans went. I go, wait, it's named after our guy, Charles Simeon. Why aren't there any more Anglicans here? They go, Gene, I don't know. Tell people. So I have ever since. But what I learned was hospitality from these wonderful godly brothers and sisters and that experience gave me impacted me profoundly and it's important even though I was there for a short time with them just for about the better part of a week they invested in me they included me in their lives one family had me lead devotions for their kids ooh we love Bishop Ryle I go give me give me give me give me give me, give me. I go yeah I'll do it. No. They invested in me. And of course it's draining. Of course it costs them. But Peter says we show hospitality without grumbling. You know, as, as a young, if you grow up in the D.C. area, one-third of the population leaves every year. So I remember sitting in our, in our small group at Truro, and we're praying together, and I just open up my eyes, and I go, well, that person's moving. That person's moving. That person's moving. You know? This one's graduating. Indeed, the entire room was going to be salad tossed to the four corners of the United States within the next few months. Then, then I thought, and I think it was of the Holy Spirit, Gene, give yourselves to them. Give yourself to them. Who knows what men and women will say because of our little church movement here at Christ Church. What they will say, it was while I was at Christ Church West Shore where I, for a short time, first experienced genuine Christian hospitality. And that authentic community has shaped me ever since. See, the key to hospitality is just to begin. It doesn't matter whether you live in an apartment or if you're in college in a dorm room or in a house. Once a week, Opening up a home, saying hello in the elevator at work, 
borrowing sugar from the next door. The suburbs, since, especially since COVID, has become a great place of isolation. It's made it worse even. But it may be that through our doors, all kinds of people will come, one who is hungry, one who is a colleague, an acquaintance asking sincere questions. It may be that God's new people where we live, work, and play come from sitting around your table. It may be that having shared a meal, having tasted of Christ, their own table will be open to the good news of Jesus. Hospitality is not something we do overly pragmatically. We do not practice hospitality to get conversions. We practice hospitality because God calls us to it. Because we're God's people. We share God's goodness through our homes because God has shown his goodness to us. His grace overflows the threshold of our homes. Sometimes hospitality can be very costly. Perhaps you don't think your home is large enough or clean enough or you know, big enough to, as an apartment to host others. It's fine. Bishop Jawan's people share their huts, their dirt floors, and the presence of Jesus is there in Nigeria. May our lives be filled with the grace of hospitality. The, may the grace of Bridget, who ran a medieval monastery, be ours in full. This was the table grace at the monastery in the Middle Ages. I should like a great lake of finest ale. Can you imagine a great lake of ale? <laughs> for the king of kings. I should like a table of choicest food for the family of heaven. Let the ale be made from the fruits of faith and the food be forgiving love. I should welcome the poor to my feast, for they are God's children. I should welcome the sick to my feast, for they are God's joy. Let the poor sit with Jesus at the highest place, and the sick dance with the angels. God bless the poor. God bless the sick. Bless the human race. God bless our food. God bless our drink. All our homes. Oh, God embrace. Amen. This is so practical, isn't it? Peter is practical. Let us show hospitality. Fourth, and finally, in light of all this, let us recognize that the end is near by serving one another. Verse 10 and 11. Each one has received a gift. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Notice, he doesn't create a master list of spiritual gifts. He doesn't spell everything out. He just groups them in two big categories. Speaking ministry and serving ministry. Number one, speaking ministry. Uh, those who are speaking, speaking as oracles of God, recognizing that it's not your word. This includes yours truly. It includes all our little church team leaders that we teach, recognizing that it's not ours, it's his, and we lead people in it. Kent Hughes tells of his experience in this ministry of, of speaking. 
He said, I experience a heightened eloquence while preaching so that the cadence and volume of my voice intensify the truth I'm preaching. There's nothing quite like it. The Holy Spirit filling one's sails, the sense of his pleasure and the awareness that something is happening among one's hearers. The experience is, of course, not unique. For thousands of preachers have similar experience, even greater ones than I. Those of us who preach and lead little churches are to be mindful at the end of the day, what we are engaged in is entirely beyond us. We're not fit for it, but by God's grace and out of concern for the church, the body of Christ, our very words become his. For his spirit is the one speaking. Second category of people are the behind-the-scenes people, the serving ministries, which are just as important as the speaking ministries. Peter makes this use of this first-century household word, servants. These were the men and women in the house who made them, they ran the home. They worked long and hard and ensured that the environment was conducive to a healthy family life. So according to Peter, as with those who speak, they do with the strength that God supplies. We do all this work not on our strength, but on the strength that the Holy Spirit gives us in Jesus Christ. So Peter closes this section where he started, that the end is near. In order that in everything may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Since the end is at hand, we're to give ourselves self-control, sober-mindedness. We're to be known as people for sincere love in our community. We're to be known as people who open up our homes, show hospitality. We're to be caught up in the power of the Holy Spirit in service to one another. These are the marks of a Christian. It's convicting, but remember, we can't do it in our own strength. It's something the Holy Spirit does in and through us for his glory. And we do it because of the cross. Not to earn his favor, you have his favor in Jesus. We give ourselves to it. And the world can't beat this. I don't care how flashy they are. You abandon the teaching of Peter, and what you find is Neil Neville Shute's 1957 thriller novel, On the Beach. We had to read it in Fairfax County English class. The novel tells of the catastrophic results of an accidental nuclear war and chronicles the ending of the world as we know it. The northern hemisphere was instantly destroyed in the nuclear attack. Everybody's dead. The southern hemisphere, the end would come slowly as radiation drifted down their way. There would be time to prepare, time to seek solace in religion, or alcohol, or frenzied sex, Buying that one thing you always wanted, driving a fast car, buying, taking all your life savings out and buying whatever, consuming the best bottles of wine from the cellar. In the end, when sickness could not be stopped, the government would issue a cyanide pill to those who waited, hoping they would not have to use them, knowing that they would use them. That's the world without Christ. What would I do if I learned that all human history was drifting toward an inevitable ending? What would you do? 
How does one live when the end, the very end, is said to be at hand? What would you do with the time you had left? Be sober-minded. Earnestly love God's people and all those outside of God's people. Be hospitable. Serve others. <laughs> all because Christ served us on the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, help us to do all these things for your glory. Be it self-controlled sober-mindedness, sincerely loving the body of Christ here at Christ Church, showing hospitality, serving or speaking, simply living a your kingdom come life, Lord. Holy Spirit, we ask you to do through us what we cannot do for ourselves, all because of this season which is based on the cross. You love us with that everlasting love, Lord. You secured our salvation and our present. We ask, Lord, for your glory and dominion that through our lives you would extend into eternity these blessings. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen.